Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka. Welcome to episode number 132 of ADHD for Smartass Women. And we are going to dive right in. You'll notice if you go back through all of our prior podcast episodes that I don't have an episode specifically on trauma. And for good reason. I know what an important topic this is. And I am not trained in trauma. I also haven't experienced what they call big T trauma. So my goal first and foremost is frankly to do no harm. So I wanted to make sure that I got this right, especially when it comes to trauma, because there is such a high percentage of those who are diagnosed with ADHD who also have trauma. I also have these rules about who I interview. And in almost all cases, they are women who've been diagnosed with ADHD. So I've been looking for far too long to bring on an expert on trauma and ADHD who also has ADHD and is a woman. And I wanted my guest to be strength-focused in that she could provide hope and also help our listeners to understand that often our biggest struggles yield our greatest gifts. So for all these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Denise Marshall. Denise Marshall, MA, is a licensed professional counselor, advanced alcohol and drug counselor, and a nationally board certified counselor. Oh my gosh, there's too many words here. She has a BA in psychology, a BA in criminology, and a master's in clinical mental health counseling. Denise works with adolescents and adults facing addiction, trauma, and OCD. She is passionate about the acceptance of differences and has authored a bullying prevention book to teach children ages four to seven to accept differences and exercise acts of kindness. She has worked with clients with a criminal background to assist in both rehabilitative reintegration following incarceration, as well as helping clients with addiction to prepare for incarceration. Denise believes that our past or life choices influence our behavior, but they do not define who we are. She helps clients find meaning in their experiences and develop a sense of peace that comes from making sense of our experiences. Denise has two teenage children, a private practice in Connecticut, and she speaks regularly on trauma and finding the value and meaning of life challenges. Denise, welcome. Did I get all of that right? Oh my gosh, that's a very generous introduction. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on your podcast because I love listening to it. I take you on my walk very often. I don't know if you know that, but um, I love that you're focusing on that ADHD is actually it can be a huge benefit. And I also, just to note, love your saying that you make limoncello out of lemons. So <laughs> anyway, I thought this is someone that I should connect with. <laughs> so. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
Obviously, we're going to talk about trauma, but I always think it's important for our listeners to know who our guests are and where they've been. And I I think it helps them to see how much we actually have in common. So can we talk about your ADHD diagnoses first? Yes, sure. So it was a kind of an interesting road. So obviously, I had all the hallmark things that I did not recognize, you know, having the accept, talks excessively check mark on every report card that I can never remember with the exception of one that was celebrated greatly by myself. That <laughs> I was so proud of myself <laughs> that I didn't get it. But regardless, prior to becoming a therapist, I actually was a hairdresser and I did hair and makeup for a long time. I worked in um, New York doing celebrity hair and makeup and that was really what I really loved in addition to the therapy side. So my original plan was to go to college and finish at cosmetology school and high school at the same time, which I did with the view to pay for college, you know, doing hairdressing. And so I did that. And then I graduated from college and I was thinking, well, I'm having so much fun. Why would I, I love doing hair and makeup. Why would I want to go work at some job sitting behind a desk? Because I knew that that would not work for me. So I continued to, you know, do hair. So anyway, I was um, cutting this woman's hair. I cut her hair for many years, and she was actually a psychologist who specialized in ADHD. And <laughs> I said, "Yeah, you know, I think I might. I'm thinking about getting assessed for that. I wonder if I have ADHD." And she said, "Well, you know, you can spend the money if you want, or I can just tell you right now, without question, yes, you have ADHD." <laughs> she said, "I've watched you for you know all these years, and yeah." You, you don't need to waste your time or money. But I, I did do some further assessing. But anyway, that's kind of how it all started. So interesting kind of little side note there that it's kind of a perfect career for someone with ADHD because you can do a lot of different things in one little project and it's kind of start to finish. And, you know, you see your rewards immediately. Um, I still, you know, love that side of my my life for sure. <laughs> So I think you were the one who told me that there's a real high likelihood of ADHD if you're a hairstylist, if you're in that industry. Yeah, yeah. It tends to attract a lot of people with ADHD just for several reasons. One is the training isn't, you know, super duper long. It's about a year roughly. And again, you're moving all the time. You're moving from one project to another. You get to be creative. You get to still talk. You still get to do all these things. And you see immediately the you know, the effects of your effort through work. And um, yeah, so you see that a lot, actually. And you kind of play therapist too, right? Yeah, I know. I actually, I was telling about uh, people. I said, I'm I'm a therapist. I'm a therapist (laughs) and a hairdresser, although I don't do hair anymore. But yeah, (laughs) only for those odd friends that call me sometimes begging for, you know, they have a special event and they want to do something. But anyway. So can I ask you, did you always feel different? than others. Well, funny you should say that. Yeah, my kids and I were looking at old my old yearbooks and I certainly did and it's uh, well documented that pretty much everyone who wrote in my yearbook in high school said one of a kind, unique, unusual, different. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, certainly I you know had been to the principal's office many times for my I thought was celebratory behavior, but apparently that wasn't viewed it that way <laughs> from my principals. <laughs> But you you like the fact that they wrote those things. I love in, it. In your, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. For sure. I love it. Yeah. I've never um, felt that burdened. I mean, yeah, I wish I were a bit more organized. That would be nice. But apart from that, I I love my, my brain. <laughs> so how old? You have two kids. And how old are they? They are 15 and 16. Okay. So they're still relatively young. I'm just wondering for you, have you noticed that your symptoms have gotten worse as you've gotten older? That is a good question. Hmm. You may not be old enough, Denise. Uh, no, I to answer that question. Oh, I am. I believe me. I know what you're talking about. The, uh, <laughs> the effect of the hormones and ADHD. I definitely, I think so. And I think certainly the sleep disruption, you know, contributes to the exasperation of the ADHD symptoms for sure. Um, and that comes along with all this hormonal stuff. So yeah, I think women definitely have, uh, you know, not that it's easy for men either, but men or sorry, women, we do have a little bit more to deal with just because of all the hormone fluctuations. I, mean, I know that's not what this podcast is about, but definitely we are impacted okay. in different ways. 
for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Women have a much harder, I don't know about much harder, but definitely a harder time than men for so many reasons. But yeah, I think that's one of the main ones. So what has changed since you were diagnosed? Well, I think just the fact that, okay, first of all, yeah, this is actually a real thing. It's not just that I'm, you know, lazy or I can't, you know, follow through or that I don't pay attention. That's definitely changed that I realized, okay, well, this is actually a thing. Um, and that I don't have to be embarrassed about it. I, you know, I, I actually went ahead and finished getting my master's because I always felt a little self-conscious going to things and, you know, people, you know, that, that I would be surrounded by had all pretty much been to college. And it just always kind of bothered me that, uh, that I didn't um, get my master's and, and stuff. And I definitely wanted to continue with the therapy, you know, go down the therapy line because it was still kind of that main goal from way back when. So I guess that part of it has changed, just the acceptance of, you know, me realizing I'm not like this horrible, bad person that can't function in the standard tradition of, you know, what's expected in society. So did you struggle in school? You know, surprise, just with the behavioral component, <laughs> um, <laughs> academically, no. Now, having said that, when I see what my kids are doing in today's generation, there, I don't think there's any chance I could keep up with the academic demands that are in place now. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to school in the Midwest and the demands at my particular school weren't that rigorous. Um, and I don't think they were that rigorous, you know, 30 years ago either. So yeah, I think yeah. I would definitely now for sure. <laughs> Okay, so let's get on, on to the big subject, ADHD and trauma. I know... Well, I just jumped right into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been putting it off for two years, just petrified that I'm going to get it wrong. And it's so interesting because I've been so scared of it. And I don't know if you've noticed this, and I don't know if this is my reticular activating system going, but once I kind of dove in... I am just so fascinated by it, and I'm seeing everybody talking about it all of a sudden. All these programs. I was just watching Oprah and uh, Prince Harry. They have a new, it's a show on, I think, Apple TV called The Me You Can't See, and it's all about different mental health challenges, but you know, they definitely dive into trauma in a big way. And then I recently heard Brene Brown, it's an excellent podcast, and I can't remember what her podcast is called, but that particular episode, it was with uh, Dr. Bruce Perry and Mm -hmm. Oprah. Yes. And I guess when Oprah opened her schools in Africa, she gave, you know, these girls these full ride scholarships, and they were so excited, and they were these brilliant, brilliant girls, brought them all to the school, and I think it was within the first two weeks, like they were just leaving, and she couldn't figure out what was going on. They would literally just disappear. And so she brought Dr. Perry in and I guess he looked at, you know, what was happening and he's like, Oprah, it's PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she has now written a book with him. It's more, you know, it's his book, but she asked the questions and she wanted her name on it so it would get more exposure. And it's called What Happened to You? Yes. And so I heard her talking or I heard uh, Brene Brown's podcast and then this book and then Gabor Mate had, you know, has a new documentary out. And so I'm wondering, is it my reticular activating system or are people becoming more aware of trauma and especially childhood trauma? Well, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, Dr. Perry and, um, Gabor Mate, they have all both and, you know, Bessel van der Kolk as well, have really highlighted the impact of trauma and how it plays out physically in our bodies, how it plays out in our behavior, how it plays out in our relationships, and how it contributes to so many mental health diagnoses, including ADHD. The thing, there's so much overlap in the criteria to diagnose for trauma and ADHD, that it can get really, really blurred. And it can be masked sometimes. And I'm not saying that every person with ADHD has trauma, but there is a much higher prevalence of the comorbidity of trauma and ADHD, for sure. So can we start with just what is trauma? Right. So it's a really loaded question, because trauma is, you know, all perception. It's, it depends on so many factors, like what is your support system? But 
just to be like kind of clear. So trauma, there is there are little traumas which are kind of consistent but still impactful, you know, divorce, relocating, financial stress, food scarcity. Constant um, struggles in school where teachers don't understand you yes. and you're made to feel like there's something wrong with you. Right. Yeah. Being the social exclusion that can come with it from the impulsivity of that goes along sometimes with ADHD. You know, you, you're, the, you're the kid that runs up and bashes into the kid to get their attention. And that's viewed, you know, unfavorably, I, I learned. Um, <laughs> um but regardless, like those are, but those are consistent daily things that happen that accumulatively become trauma. And then you have big T, which are kind of the bigger kind of isolate, can be isolated events. Maybe it could be a car accident, maybe a death of a loved one. It could be an assault of some kind, physical or sexual, or maybe repeated sexual or physical assault or physical abuse. Um, you know, all of these things are traumatic. Now, when, when you hear that, some people would be saying, oh, well, you know, I got in trouble every single day at school and, you know, I'm fine. I don't have trauma from it. And, and maybe you don't. That's very possible. But there's other things that go into it. It depends on your support system. Did you have someone that could help regulate you or did you not? Were you on your own? Did you have other accumulative traumas that kind of exasperate, exasperate, what is the word? Exacerbated. Exacerbated. That's the word. No, get it stuck in your brain. <laughs> yeah, exacerbated. All of these kind of smaller things that come up. So, again, it's all, you know, you could experience something that I wouldn't find traumatic, and I might experiencing something that you might find not find traumatic. So, it really just kind of depends. But regardless, how does it show up? I'm wondering, um, maybe you're wondering that question. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I, I want to know. Well, before we do that, though, what happens in the body when people? I'm wondering if your question should come. Okay, you go with your question <laughs> first, and then I want to know what happens, you know, to people who have trauma when they get stressed. Like, how does it show up in the body? What happens? Right. Okay. Right. So trauma is. So in terms of behavior, let's just start with the behavioral component. So, Mm -hmm. and here's kind of where some overlap can come in with ADHD when someone's trying to figure out like what's going on with me. So for example, someone who has trauma might become hypervigilant, right? They're always scanning for problems. Is there a danger anywhere? Am I safe? Okay. But what, what could hypervigilance also look like in ADHD? it can kind of look like a lack of focus because you're off looking for everything else and it looks like you're not focusing, but maybe Mm -hmm. it's actually trauma. We don't know. You know, we would have to get a whole history from someone. What else could it be like with trauma? Maybe there's some disassociating where you just need to reground yourself for whatever reason. And therefore you kind of go inward a little bit. You could become quiet. You may even look a little glazed over or something. Well, that, what can that look like with ADHD? That kind of looks like you're not paying attention either. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, just kind of shut down and avoidant and it looks like you're unable to focus. So those are just a few kind of basic things that some overlap can happen. Now, in terms of how does it show up in your body, trauma really can play and does play a long effect on someone. It has long-term effects. So um, for example, with sexual abuse, people, survivors, the cancer rates are much higher. Again, this is not to say that every person who has sexual trauma is going to get cancer. I don't want to put that in anyone's head, but certainly the rates are higher across the board with hypertension, with all kinds of trauma, because your cortisol levels are increased. You are more hypervigilant. You are always scanning for problems. And you kind of tend to walk around with a little bit higher level of adrenaline and cortisol and kind of maybe so lower serotonin production, um, it all affects your body and your body stores all of these things and it, it becomes very dysregulated. It also can affect the way the brain develops and wires um, and, and can contribute to ADHD. So it's all intertwined. All the little puzzles of the, or pieces of the puzzle are all kind of somehow fit together. There's really no way of avoiding it, um, avoiding the, you know, your, your life and your story. Okay. So 
What about PTSD? Where does that fit in? Because you always, well, you don't always, but I often hear PTSD mentioned when someone is talking about trauma. Right. So that's, you know, so PTSD is kind of people, when you say PTSD, everyone thinks about the person in the military that, you know, maybe they were at war and experienced a lot of trauma that way. I think that's kind of what first pops in to your mind. And maybe they have flashbacks. Maybe they have wake up in the middle of the night with bad dreams. Maybe they disassociate also. Um, in terms of the actual, you know, they're kind of used inter, intermixed a lot, like with trauma and, and PTSD. Um, typically, mm-hmm. the PTSD is more the medical term for it, really, the, what, what you would see in the DSM, the Diagnostic okay. Statistical Manual. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically trauma. Right, right. And it's how your body reacts to trauma. So post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? Right, right. Yes. Okay. So beyond the physical health problems that trauma can cause, what else happens when, um, or how else can untreated childhood trauma impact you throughout your life? Right. So, I mean, again, this is another thing that we see a lot, which is... um, you know, strained relationships, maybe uh, unstable job history, definitely like some parenting challenges. Sometimes maybe the person isn't quite as, you know, they're not regulated themselves sometimes. And that kind of shows up in the kids and then the kids become dysregulated and it just becomes this back and forth. Financial problems, the impulsivity with the spending, then you become, you know, you have financial difficulty because you're overspending addiction. There's a lot of high co- uh, comorbidity rate with addiction and ADHD because you're trying to kind of, you're trying to regulate yourself with medication or drugs or alcohol. So, you know, a lot of people use marijuana to help try to, you know, man- or manage their ADHD and then that can become problematic. So it, it really shows up in a lot of different areas. And so is the reason that they're so dysregulated and they're just trying to get their nervous system to calm down so they can feel better. And so that is what starts them down, you know, the road to a lot of these addictions. Yeah, definitely. You know, maybe they can't, uh, I have seen a lot of people with ADHD have problems with sleep, whether or not they're medicated with stimulants doesn't, you know, I'm talking about people unmedicated and medicated. So then, Mm -hmm. yeah, it becomes this kind of vicious cycle. Well, now I have to take something for sleep then I have to take something because I feel a little groggy. I need to take, you know, something to wake up and it just, yeah, it becomes over and over. Or maybe it's just that they want to try to fit in and not be kind of, and I hate to, you know, for the hyperactivity people, um, you know, they're kind of bouncing off the wall or moving from one thing to another and they become sedated a little bit, maybe with a alcohol or, or whatever it is. And so it does help. They think it's short term, regulates them, but then it becomes problematic because the more you do it, the more you have to, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about emotional dysregulation and trauma, which of course we see with ADHD as well. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like why, if you've experienced trauma, why would that cause emotional dysregulation? Right. So it's kind of goes back to the perception of everything. You know, everything's stored in that little part of the brain, you know, called the amygdala, which is kind of the very, very primitive part of our brain that takes in through our senses and decides, is this danger? Is this something I need to fight, flight, or freeze? Right. So the smell reminds me of something. I see something that reminds me of something before. We're not actively thinking about this or processing it. It's just quick, quick, quick. And so it if you have some trauma, right, and maybe let's say um, you hear the voice of someone that reminds you of someone who, you know, violated you in some way, whether that be, you know, whatever it is, then your brain doesn't have time to process and go through and make any judgment about, well, is this really the same person? All it remembers is that voice in the amygdala. And then that says, get away, get away. And let's say if you're someone who flight. (laughs) So that's kind of how it can play out. So then that can look like, okay, well, I have ADHD, so I'm just going to like run out right now. But, but actually you're just trying to avoid something that you, you know, perceived as, as possibly dangerous. I don't know if I answered that very well. So it's the, the nervous system, the amygdala that pops off, right? And your nervous system is clearly dysregulated 
and you're not taking the time to pause to figure out, does this really make sense? You're not even able to ask those questions. You just immediately react, whether the reaction is good or bad for you. Right. Until you get some, you know, insight into this. Yes. And then once you learn to kind of, you recognize what is it? Well, wait a minute. I know this feeling. My stomach hurts. My palms are sweaty. My heart's racing. You know, maybe I'm feeling my ears are ringing. Maybe I feel like I'm going to throw up. Maybe I have a lump in my throat. You know, these are all different ways people experience anxiety or feared, you know, perceived trauma or not for fear, not perceived trauma, perceived fear, something they need to escape. So when they have that first initial, you know, like you just said, the ding, until you can kind of learn to recognize that, okay, this isn't really probably something, I'm probably not getting ready to die right now, might feel that Mm -hmm. way, but let me just check around. Let me check for reality around me and see, okay, wait, oh, I actually am safe, but I still feel upset in my stomach or I still have ringing in my ears. That's okay. You don't have to try to make it go away by running away from it or medicating it or you know, giving it alcohol or whatever it is, you can actually live with that. And the more you're able to live with it, the less frequent it will become and the less impactful it will be and the less scary it will be. So you, what you're saying is that you got to kind of be in the middle of it. You've got to feel it. You have to. And, you know, all of these things that people do, like whether it's addiction or shopping or sex or gambling or whatever it is, to try to avoid that feeling, they're so afraid of feeling the anxiety or the fear or the sadness that they're trying to mask it. And it just, it makes it worse. And if they kind of are able somehow to just go into it and let it be there and Mm -hmm. sit with it for a little bit, surprisingly enough, it kind of goes away on its own. And then you, you know, you just become better and better at regulating yourself. You know, it's so interesting because you're right. It sounds just like ADHD. I mean, this is what we talk about all the time about first you need the awareness, right? And then you need to be able to pause, you know, breathe, get into your body and figure out, okay, what are the next steps? So I get that trauma and ADHD must just be so intertwined when there's both because the symptoms look so similar. So how do you tell the difference or can you tell the difference? Right. Yeah. I mean, you can like with, you know, you've got to get a history of the person, right? So, and then how do you tell the difference long-term? So you get the history of the person, what were their support systems? What were their traumas? How did they handle them at the time? How are they managing their memories now? And then once you kind of work through that, sometimes the ADHD symptoms kind of dissipate. Well, then, you know, you've got that was actually more of a trauma response that you've been having all these years. Sometimes they don't. But even if they don't, you learn better ways to regulate yourself and manage it so that you don't have to, you know, be, and I use my own words because I feel this way sometimes, a train wreck. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't have to live in that state of feeling like I've got to hold it together. I've got to be perfect. I've got to be, you know, appearing to have everything all, all in order and together, um, because it actually becomes more or in order and together because you've kind of worked through some of those old mysteries that were going on. So that's a perfect segue to what I believe, which is, and this is my question, I believe it's so important that you need to work through the trauma before coaching on the ADHD. And I have a really bright line in my programs. I require my students to check a box that says that I'm not qualified to work with students that are still, you know, in the trauma. I don't want them to waste their money. And I get so much blowback on this. But what I noticed is that in my coaching program, we go into values when we start. And we take this deep dive into our parents and caregivers' values and, you know, what are their values and have they really adopted other people's values that aren't their own. And I just noticed how much some of my students struggled with this. And no matter how hard they tried, they couldn't move forward. And sometimes they'd finish the entire program. Sometimes they just ran immediately and I never heard from them again, which just killed me, right? Because then they're telling themselves, this is all my fault. And look, there's something else that I'm, I wasn't able to finish, let alone start. Mm. Sometimes they'd finish the entire program and they were so excited. They knew exactly what they needed to do next, but they could not move forward into action. 
And these are brilliant, amazing students who had so much to offer the world. And initially, I didn't understand it. And again, I just felt so bad because, you know, they were beating themselves up. Why can everybody else, you know, that they're working with that are their, you know, um, what do I call them? Comrades or, you know, uh, other students. Mm -hmm. They'd see other students be able to move forward and they couldn't. And so clearly these students, they obviously needed strategies for procrastination, for getting things done, for moving forward. But what they needed first was to regulate their nervous system. They had to process the trauma first. And I'm just curious what you think about that. Right. Um, you know, that's actually a really good point. And I have to commend you for being so diligent with that and, and recognizing that it's imperative that you do. So well done for that. I'll give you uh, three you. gold stars. Um, I love gold stars. <laughs> but to your point, so that's interesting because people will say, well, you know, I'm not going to be in a relationship until I work through all my trauma, or I'm not going to get this new job until I work through my trauma. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do, you know, like whatever it is that I have to work through this trauma first. But, but really the trauma work comes throughout our lives. Like we kind of take it in little steps, but the bigger point is, and to what I think what you're saying is if you recognize, you have to know there's trauma there. And if you recognize that there is, absolutely, you have to process that because you really, unfortunately, will be very difficult to move forward. It doesn't matter how great the coach is. It doesn't matter how great the personal trainer is. It doesn't matter how great the nutritionist is. Until you process those core, core feelings it will be really, really hard to move forward. So I agree with you. I think starting a huge coaching program, thinking that knowing that you have trauma, thinking that that's going to mask it would be a huge disappointment later, if that makes sense. You know, what's interesting. Yeah, it is. It totally does. What's interesting that as you're talking, I realize that a lot of students too, they start they don't think they have trauma. Yes. And it's not until they start and they have to go through, you know, their childhood and, you know, and of course there are other students posting about, oh my gosh, you know, what I realized is I'm just so appreciative that my parents, you know, shared values that I now, you know, more than adopted, but they, they, they live them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that makes the students who have trauma realize that, oh my gosh, it's trauma. Right. So, So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people will come in and I'll say, you know, it's one of my first questions because obviously they've, they've, um, you know, found me for a reason, you know, with the trauma or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll say, you know, do you have trauma? Oh no, no, I don't, I don't have trauma. Oh, okay. Well tell me a little bit about, well, you know, my, you know, my, um, you know, my mom was never, you know, I really didn't see her. We never, you know, we didn't really have food in the house. And, um, you know, I had this uncle that was a little inappropriate, but, but it didn't really bother me. I, you know, I don't really have trauma, but okay. But then you start asking about, well, what's your life? What's your work history? What's your relationship history? How are you doing? What kind of addictions do you have? And then it all plays out. But, but people, we tend to minimize our trauma unless it's some blatant thing that's been, you know, shown on TV that, that is labeled and okay to be viewed as trauma. Then we, think that we're not supposed to actually feel it, but just because you have a broken leg and I have a broken leg and your broken leg is a lot worse doesn't mean that I still don't have a broken leg, right? It's it's all perception. Yeah. And I would think the beauty of that too is that I am sure they're beating themselves up if they can't keep a job, if they can't stay in a relationship. And when they're sitting there saying, and all the other things, right? They're drinking too much or they're, you know, so they're beating themselves up and there's all this shame and they were making it a moral failing, a, a character flaw. And the reality of it is there's a reason for it. And I would suspect, I know this, that once we know why we are the way we are, only then can we start putting in, you know, some structure in there to make things a lot better. Right. Yeah. And, and part of that, you know, I have to say the biggest, I think the biggest hurdle in working with trauma or getting people to admit trauma, and you just said it, is the shame around it. There's so much shame, not in only the, you know, mainly because, you know, the event that happened, but to your point, the way they're, they're running, managing their lives and the way they're interacting with people and the way that they kind of keep missing the bar in some way. And the shame around that, I think, is really the hardest, hardest part to work through. 
but workable. It is workable. I don't want to sound gloom and doom because certainly there's hope. And, you know, I, it's part of the reason why I do what I do is because I, I feel like I was able and lucky enough to be able to kind of make my own limoncello, so to speak. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about what works to reduce trauma symptoms. Well, so it's not just about reducing the symptoms, unfortunately. It's about actually going back and doing some trauma work with a trained trauma therapist. But um, I guess when you say the symptoms, are you talking about... Uh, You know what? How about if I say this? What works to reduce trauma? Like, how how do we fix this? Okay. Well, I'm going to be a little challenging here, a little provocative Go for it. Um, I don't know that we we fix trauma because, you know, unfortunately, it's it's something that we experience. So I don't know that we have to fix it. But um, (laughs) I know you're just nitpicking on your words. But um, No, I I love it. Um, I love it. But I think we have to learn how to accept the trauma and reframe it so that we realize and, you know, hopefully realize that it, it, it had nothing to do with us. It, you know, whatever has happened, whether it be someone that has abandoned you or been, uh, you know, abusive or whatever it is, we, we feel like it's all for our fault. We, we did this in some way. And, and let's think about that. Does anyone really, really deserve any of that ever? I don't, I just don't think so. So I, I think that that's kind of the biggest part of, of how do you, you said, how do you like kind of fix trauma? It's not Mm -hmm. fixing it. It's recognizing it. First of all, um, recognizing that really had nothing to do with you, that there's nothing wrong with you. And that it's something that happened to you. It's not something you chose. Yeah. Well, and that you get to have a life. You don't have to, yeah, can it will, it, I always say it's always, it's not going to be the main ingredient all the time. It might be a flavor. You might always have a flavor of a memory of this and that's okay. It really is. It doesn't mean though that it has to paralyze you for the rest of your life and be the main focus of your life. But to say that, okay, I'm going to fix trauma and it's never going to bother me again. Uh, I just don't know if that's possible. It might not bother you, but, and you might make something great out of it, you know? Um, I hope, right? Yeah. That's probably the goal that you can, um, you can see that, Hey, you know, well, I always say the best purposes give meaning to our past. Right. Like Viktor Frankl, the man's search for meaning, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone's read that. I know you have the, um, sure you have you know, the man that was in the Holocaust and was able uh-huh. to find reason for all of his suffering through helping other people. Yeah. So it's, it's actually somehow reframing your trauma and finding some way to do something positive with it is the most healing thing, I think. Okay. So what therapies work to affect that? Okay. So I do not use an EMDR, not because I don't believe in it. I'm just not trained in it. The EMDR is, um, I don't, I can't remember what it stands for, but it's, um, eye movement, eye movement, desensitization, desensitization, is that desensitization and reprocessing, right? Yes. Yes. So basically it's, it's kind of rewiring the way the brain works. And my, uh, my limited understanding of it is that they kind of have you, follow some eye movement things while you're, you know, processing your trauma and it helps kind of re rewire how you, um, are kind of your reaction to it and your understanding of it. So that's a really big one. Um, people are just now starting to, I know that ketamine is being used for trauma. I know that MDMA is in the third phase trials um, Mm -hmm. to be approved for trauma work. So the basis of really all trauma work is to somehow be able to, you know, discuss, you don't have to be, you know, relive the whole details of everything, but to be able to process your emotions in a relaxed physical body. And this goes back to that body connection and the regulation and all of it. And so once you're able to do that, to be able to actually process some of the emotion without having all of the physical symptoms, then you can start healing the trauma, working through the trauma and processing it in a way that isn't going to be so devastating to you. Because first of all, you know what it is. So now you recognize it. Oh, wait a minute. I know when I have this feeling, this might actually be about something that happened a very long time ago and may not have anything to do with what's going on right now. So 
that's kind of the premise of all trauma work. So what you're doing is you're healing or regulating the nervous system by reconnecting the body with the brain. So you're breaking that conditioned response loop of them remembering the trauma and then going into that high trauma state. Exactly. Yeah. So now I don't have to, you know, get angry at this person that just cut me off in traffic, you know, like, so sometimes I'll I'll use that as an example. That's what you get that kind of initial angry feeling, which then reminds you in some way of this, this past thing that happened to you and that, but it's actually happened in this traffic, but it has nothing to do with that old, old response or that old, old thing that happened to you, if that makes sense. But your body has the same response. That is such an interesting example because I think all of us can identify with if someone cuts you off in traffic, they're flipping you off, that you do kind of, you get upset. But we then don't do anything additional on top of that, right? Versus with trauma, it could send you into doing that next responsive thing that right. could lead to, you know, road rage and all kinds of terrible things that are definitely detrimental to your health and well-being. Exactly, exactly. And this is, you know, I, I don't know if I had mentioned I had um, used to run some anger management programs um, for people, you know, that were incarcerated or coming out. And that was often what we would see. It, it had not, you know, you know, as part of the big lesson was trying to get them to understand that just all of these little grievances that you have that you seem to kind of overreact to has nothing mm-hmm. to do with what's going on right here, right now. This is something that happened a long time ago, you know? So they're connecting the upset. Okay, we're all upset, but they then connect it with something that happened to them. Right, right. Because they have that same physical feeling. So back when mm-hmm. XYZ happened, I had this, you know, pit in my stomach when it happened. And now anytime I have a pit in my stomach, whether you're cognizant of it or not, or aware of it or not, it reminds you of that. And therefore you're reacting in that same way, even though, you know, someone, you know, maybe they gave you the wrong change at the deli counter and and that for whatever reason upset you. And so now you have that pit in your stomach, but to you, the pit in the stomach means something much more severe than someone giving you the wrong change back. So you're always going back to that time. Yes when yes. you felt that trauma. Yes. That's how your body feels. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I know. It's fascinating. But you know what? It, it, it does a good job in some ways, right? All those reactions have kept us safe for many, many years. But most of us aren't in, you know, war zones or very, some people are in very difficult situations still. And, you know, it is keeping them safe in some way. But most of us normally are in a pretty good safe environment. And I know that I'm not being naive to know that not everyone is. So I don't want to send that message. Well, it's the saber tooth tiger thing that we always hear about, right? That that's how our body reacts as if the saber tooth, what is it with me and pronouncing things today? I don't know. I had it as well. So (laughs) maybe you're rubbing off on you. Yeah. In the stars. (laughs) Yeah. So we have this idea that, okay, it's a saber tooth tiger when in fact, we no longer have to outrun, well, we could never outrun them, but we no longer have to fear saber-toothed tigers, but that's just how our system is set up. Exactly, exactly. I mean, right, we're, we were born to figure out a way to survive. And so now anytime, particularly with a trauma background, there's any perception of any fear, it just is exaggerated to... Um, kind of catastrophic reaction sometimes. So I really encourage people to try to, you know, figure out like, you know, do I have something that's lurking? And it could be, it doesn't mean it has to be that you were, you know, raped or that you were uh, beaten or anything like that. It can be that you had some moment in time that really, really, really upset you that you were unable to process in some way that might be playing out right now in your everyday life that, you know, I I would just encourage people to get in touch with that. Yeah. I mean, I think it behooves all of us to really think about what happened and is there trauma and what is trauma for us and just the awareness. Exactly. And also though, to not become like, don't let it be an excuse to not be happy and don't let it to be a reason to not produce and don't let it be a reason to fall into, you know, habits that don't serve you. It it doesn't have to paralyze you. 
It really doesn't. Um, what, you know, is it hard? Yes. Was it sad? Yes. Will it always be somewhere in your brain? Probably yes. But it doesn't mean that it has to be this big, heavy lead ball that you carry around the rest of your life. I love that. Okay. So Bessel van der Kolk, he's, it, would you consider him like the godfather of trauma? <laughs> I think so. Well, him and do- actually uh, Dr. Bruce Perry, I think both are oh. amazing. But when it comes to the the Body Keeps the Score, um, Bessel van der Kolk's book, absolutely without question. And there's so much. I just heard, I know I can't remember who the podcast was with, but just listening to someone who's also a trauma expert talking about I think they said 85 to 90%. I think it was that high of people going into um, physicians, doctors with medical problems are very often stress and trauma related. And it's true. I, I think, you know, I, I'm not going to go into my full details, but I personally had something, this was long before um, Dr. Vander Kolk had his book out, probably 20 years before it came out, actually 15 or 20. but. I had a a physical problem going on, long story short, I ended up having surgery. Um, There was nothing there (laughs) and it was all trauma. So this was actually 30 years ago, over 30 years ago and uh, ended up then, you know, getting my own trauma work. Um, Didn't even know. I I knew I had trauma, but I hadn't told anyone. Mm -hmm. And once I processed that, all of my physical stuff went away. It was miraculous, honestly. So I'm a huge believer in uh, stress, chronic stress and Mm. trauma. It takes its toll on you. It does. And if you, if you don't process it, your body will force you to find a way to, um, whether that be through hypertension or, you know, whatever. So Bessel van der Kolk, he, um, He's the one that showed through brain scans that when people suffer from trauma, like PTSD, Mm -hmm. you know, soldiers, Mm -hmm. the area of the brain responsible for speech goes offline. Mm -hmm. And this means that talk therapy can often not be as effective Mm -hmm. because the distress and trauma gets encoded in the body. So he really believed that interventions needed to be directed at the body. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned EMDR. Mm -hmm. Is breathing one of them? Yeah. So any of these somatic um, experiences that make you really explain get, somatic. Somatic is kind of getting in touch with your body. So looking at what. Okay. So I have this thought comes into my mind. Whatever it is, where do I feel that in my body? And really getting quiet and feeling. Where do you feel it? You know, are your are your legs tingly? Do you feel numb? Do you? Uh, again, have the sweaty palms? Do you feel a little nauseous? Really paying attention to that because over time, you know, we kind of learn to ignore all of that, right? We have to, we've got to get through our day. We can't walk around focusing on our, our ears ringing or our stomach being upset. So we tend to kind of shut it down and then just react in some physical way or, or mask it in some way by eating or, Mm-hmm. or drinking or you know, whatever it is, uh, shopping. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, shopping is, you know, definitely, a, an addiction can be yeah. and, a, and a coping mechanism. We'll go into the, that whole story another time uh, <laughs> with the, you know, the, the dysregulation of dopamine and, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, all these hormones and the chemicals and all the stuff that happens, uh, come in. So yeah, getting in touch with your body and that's kind of what, definitely what the EMDR does as well as to my, the best of my knowledge, the way I understand it and just allowing yourself to understand, like you said, like the verbal, the, sometimes it does go offline. Sometimes people disassociate, they shut down to a point that they can appear catatonic. And it's because that, you know, they, that's what they had to do at that time to survive what they were going through. Ah, yeah. Okay. So you're basically talking about mindfulness, meditation, breathing, what about EFT tapping? Yeah, that's, that's, I always forget about that one. And I know it's so widely used, um, where you, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Where you're like tapping on the meridians that, that Mm -hmm. of your body, you, you can probably explain it better than I can. I went to, I did do one training on it years ago, but I didn't end up facilitating it in my practice, but a lot of people really, really like it. I know that. And it's because it's doing exactly what you're saying of getting in touch physically with what's going on. Right. Yeah. I mean, by tapping on the pressure points, you're basically just sending that signal back to the brain 
you know, the amygdala mm-hmm. that's popping off and you're just basically telling it it's safe and to calm down. And I noticed, so in that, um, that Apple TV show that I was talking about, um, with, uh, Prince oh. Harry and Oprah, he actually was filmed, um, while his therapist was using EMDR on him. And I thought it was kind of similar because he's recounting what happened, you know, Mm -hmm. when his, when his mom died, princess Mm -hmm. Diana. And then at the same time, so he's doing those eye movements. So he's in his body. Right. And then he's also tapping, he's tapping his shoulders to kind of just keep himself in his body. I just found it fascinating to watch. It is. It is so amazing. Like how our, I mean, their, their body, the body does keep the score as, Mm -hmm. as Dr. Vanderkolk says. Um, Yeah, it's true. For sure. Wonderful. Okay. So the good news is trauma is definitely treatable, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I encourage everyone, you know, the longer you avoid it and, and try to push it down and, and hide it and not talk about it and pretend everything's okay. It's just taking more and more of your life away. And it, it's just becoming, it doesn't have to be. It is a scary thing, but it's almost like, you know, the little kid that has to go to the doctor to get the shot. They're so nervous on the way and then they get the shot and they don't even know what happened. Um, you know, the fear of actually doing it is far worse than actually processing it. And once you do, I can almost, I can't give a hundred percent money back guarantee, but I can almost assure you that your life will become significantly improved. You know, what's so interesting too, Denise, is as I get older, I can see in my friends who has childhood trauma because it seems to come out in our 40s and 50s and beyond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, Tracy, that is so interesting you said that because when I was that young 19-year-old that had the surgery and the whole thing and they recommended that I see someone... Um, I remember walking in and her asking me, you know, she, of course she knew damn well what was going on, but she, <laughs> she said, do, do you have trauma? And I said, oh no, I, you know, no, no, I don't. And uh, she kept on and, you know, of course I did. But um, I remember her saying I was having a really hard time, you know, talking about it and stuff. And she said, look, and again, I was 19. She said, you can either deal with this now or you can wait until you're 40 and you've got a couple kids in tow and you've mm-hmm. got a life and you've got a career and then you'll deal with it. But, but at some point you're going to have to. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I guess I'll just get it over with now if that's the case. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, well, and then you pass it on to your kids and then they pass it on and someone's got to stop that, you know, right. just stop it in its tracks so it doesn't become intergenerational trauma. Well, yeah, that, and that is a thing. And it's, you know, I think it's so interesting that, you know, childhood trauma, as we know, through all of the, you know, studies that were done on the Holocaust survivors, particularly Mm -hmm. that, you know, it can be passed down in the DNA, but I think healing can be passed down as well. So it it stands, I don't know that that's not scientific, but it stands to reason that it should. Absolutely. So before I let you go, one last question. Well, I've got a few ADHD more related questions, but I'd love to know, do you have any advice around finding a professional who's not only an expert in trauma, but also really understands ADHD, like someone like you? Right. Yeah. So I think um, that's a really great question. I think if you go, um, I I don't know that I necessarily want to plug any particular website, but I think if you Google for your- Dr. Google. (laughs) Yeah, doctor, go to the Google, the worldwide Google. And, you know, type in, uh, you know, in your area, find a therapist, trauma and ADHD. So, you know, if you find someone who typically I will say that if they work with trauma, they probably have a pretty good flavor of ADHD because we see a lot of comorbidity comorbidity with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I think that's probably the best way to try. And then call in and when you have your consult with them, ask them, like, do you specialize in trauma and do you have insight into ADHD and how it plays out. And if they say, no, you go on to the next one. You know, the biggest thing is finding a therapist that you connect with. Um, you know, we know through, through the studies that, um, necessarily doesn't matter what, how great your training is, or, you know, if you've gone to the best school in the world, if you don't have a good relationship with a therapist, the therapeutic relationship is what heals and what helps. It's not, it's not necessarily technical or skill. Yeah. I was just reading that, how important a relationship is. Yeah. And, and it makes sense. If you don't trust the person, why would you, I'd just be, you know, keeping everything to myself and just wanting to get out of there. 
Yeah. Yeah. You've got <laughs> yeah, to have someone that you can dump it all on. <laughs> totally. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is, Denise? Well, I think I love what you're doing. And again, I, I mean, I can't say enough good about what you're doing in terms of, you know, really trying to shift the perception, which I think is what you're doing, that ADHD is not some, you know, horrible thing that, you know, you should be ashamed about and, and try to avoid and, and try to fix and try to, you know, make it better. It's just how do you find the benefits of it, right? And, and not mm-hmm. to use it as an excuse to say like, oh, well, I, have ADHD, you know, I do this sometimes. Well, I'm messy because I'm disorganized because I have ADHD. Well, okay, that's fine. But I can also develop a discipline around it so that I can structure my life so that it is a little more organized, right? So just kind of learning where, you're, where are your weak spots, right? And trying to discipline a little bit. You don't have to be perfect, but try to work on it a little bit to try to overcome that, to make your life smoother. But then what's good about your ADHD? Well, you know, I'll, you know, use myself for an example, like my ADHD allowed me to have two amazing careers that I've loved immensely. Mm -hmm. It allows me to, you know, probably frustrates my kids trying to have a conversation with me, but, um, you know, they're going to have something, right? We, We mess our kids up in some way. So I'll just let them have that one. But what are the benefits of it? You know, what makes it your strength? What makes you unique in that way? I I think that's the key. I don't have any like quick hacks about, you know, being the latest, greatest. um, What's that woman's name that does all the organized coat? What's her name? Maria. Uh, The Japanese woman? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I'm I'm not her. But um, Marie Kondo. Yeah. Yeah. That's her name. Um, but I just think finding your strength in it, find the beauty of it, find the things that don't work for you and try to discipline and, you know, tweak those a little bit and don't, don't hold it as a big shame. It's not a shame. It's, it's, I view it as a gift. I love it. Wonderful. So do you have an ADHD workaround, something that works for you really well? Yeah. And it's so old school and I hate to even say it because you're going to probably roll your eyes like, oh my gosh, can't come up with anything better. But really the time chunking, like setting the timer or setting yeah. you know, aside a time saying, okay, I'm going to give myself 20 minutes to get this done. I'm not going to have any phone calls. I'm not going to go, I'm not doing anything during that 20 minutes until I complete this task. That's what tends to work for me. It's really the only thing I, I've found to be for myself effective. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. We can do anything for 25 minutes, right? Oh, no, 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 Tracy. I said 20. <laughs> I'm not doing 25. <laughs> okay. I was just pushing you a little bit. That's funny. Okay. So are you working on something that you want to tell us about? Like where can people find you if they want to know more about you? Yeah. So I mean, I have a website. It's um, denisemarshall.com, but it's D-E-N-E-S-E. Marshall, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L. Um, it was the 60s, so I don't know what was going on, why my mom misspelled my name, but she did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not holding against her. Um, so Maybe it was trauma. <laughs> it could have been. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, so, but I'm doing so, like a lot more speaking now and trying to help people with their own trauma and find their, their beauty and their trauma. And, you know, I think, you know, again, I have pretty significant, uh, very significant, actually childhood uh, trauma stuff. And, and I view it now surprisingly as I'm, I'm happy in some ways. Okay. It was going to happen. I'm happy that it happened to me only because I've been able to do something great with it. Um, and I'm happy, uh, and I'm able to help other people. I've helped a lot of women find the meaning of their trauma. Why did it happen? And, and what can they do now to make it better? And, you know, it's, um, I think it's helped me in my parenting tremendously. I think I'm the parent that I am because of it. So that's kind of what I'm working on, just doing speaking around that. Wonderful. Okay. So Denise, D-E-N-E-S-E, Marshall with two L's.com. And we will have that in the show notes. Thank you so much for spending time with us here today. I have literally waited for this conversation for I think two years, almost two years. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad that, that you had me on. I really appreciate it. And I'll keep listening to the podcast. Um, I think you've got some good information out there. So I really appreciate it. And I appreciate, again, what you're doing to try to destigmatize ADHD. Well, thank you. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Denise, please let us know by leaving a review. 
Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And guess what? Your reviews really help in that regard. One more thing. If you have a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio or written message. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.